0: Now, they say all good things must come to an end, and that's true of our journey through the seven churches of Revelation as well. We've read a letter directly from Jesus to each of these churches along the way. And as we've read, we've asked ourselves, what does this letter to this church so far away and written so long ago have to say to Christians like us and churches like ours now? Along the way, we've seen commendations and condemnations. We've seen calls to repentance and encouragements to hold fast. We've seen examples of faithfulness and examples of faithlessness. We've seen persecution, false teaching and spiritual laziness. Jesus has talked about lampstands, angels, crowns, new names, swords, hidden manna, Balaam, Jezebel, Satan, a key of David ...and pillars in God's temple. In other words, it's been quite the trip. But today our journey ends in Laodicea. And of the seven cities that we've visited, Laodicea is by far the richest. The city gained its wealth through a robust banking industry... ...by producing linens and textiles... ...and by being home to a thriving medical school. The city was so rich that when an earthquake destroyed everything... In 60 AD, they didn't take any funding from Rome to rebuild it. And they were very proud of that fact. They didn't hesitate to remind people of that fact. Now, the only weakness of the city of Laodicea was its lack of a good water supply. They didn't have any good water there, so it had to be brought in from several miles away through aqueducts. Now, why are these facts important? Well, these facts are important because Jesus will use them to make his point in the letter that we're about to read. And the lesson that he teaches, the Laodicean church, is incredibly relevant to us. So open to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Feel free to use our Bibles if you need to, or take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for bringing us back here another week. Uh, Father, we look out and we see the season changing and the leaves changing and falling. Um, and we just see the stability of your creation. Uh, that on the one hand, things are so unstable. Uh, things can change so quickly and uh, not just our lives, but around the world. And yet, on the other hand, uh, so many things are reliable, uh, so many things are stable, and uh, Father, in the midst of the chaos and the unpredictability of our world, uh, we're also reminded that you are in control, that you sustain our world, uh, that you created our world with purpose and function and order, uh, and Father, for that, we are grateful. And as we read your word this morning, uh, as we come to the end of a sermon series, uh, I pray that you would... Help us to kind of wrap everything up uh, from the past six weeks and, and from this week's sermon as well. Uh, Father, help us wrap everything up in a way that is beneficial for us. Um, I pray that as we end this series that uh, you would find ways to use it, find ways to bring it back to mind moving forward um, and make it be helpful for us. And Father, again, I pray that our worship this morning would be honoring to you that we would be attentive, that we would be focused on your word, uh, and just remember the privilege that we have of being here and the privilege that we have of knowing you and learning more about you uh, through the word that you've given us. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Beginning in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When Jesus, the Amen, The true one, the faithful one, the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were created. When he has a message for you, you should probably pay attention. And Jesus compares the church in Laodicea to water. But more specifically, they're not cold water and they're not hot water either. They're right in the middle. They're lukewarm. Now, this is not like Goldilocks eating the three bears porridge. In this case, being in the middle, being lukewarm, isn't just right. In their day and age, cold water was valued and rare because it was refreshing. In that day and age, you didn't have refrigerators. Hot water was valued and rare because it could be used for cleaning. And you couldn't just throw it on the stove or in the microwave and get it to boil. But lukewarm water, it wasn't ideal for either one. Jesus's point is that this church has become useless. They're like the kind of water that isn't good for drinking, but it's also not good for cleaning. That's why Jesus says he will spit them out of his mouth. A more graphic translation is that the church in Laodicea makes Jesus want to vomit. Now, what is it that got the church in Laodicea? this point what is the core thing that has made them so useless and even disgusting well jesus sums up their attitude in verse 17 they say to themselves i am rich i have prospered and i need nothing the church in laodicea could be described as spoiled arrogant and feeling self-sufficient They look at themselves in the mirror, and they like what they see. But when Jesus looks at them, he only gets a bad taste in his mouth. Now, why did the Laodiceans believe they were so great? What made them pridefully believe that they had it all together and that they needed nothing? Well, their material gain is what's brought them to this point. Again, they are rich. They are prospered. They had everything they would ever want or need. They had their wealth, they had their health, and then they had more. And they honestly came to believe that they needed nothing. They convinced themselves that they don't need anyone's help, not even God's help. But here's the problem. They're wrong. Little does the church in Laodicea know, but they are fooling themselves. They had plenty of gold in their banks. They had lots of clothes to wear. The medical school there was famous for an ointment for ailing eyes. But Jesus says they need true gold. They need white garments. They need salve for their eyes that only he can offer. They need treasure and clothes and medicine that you can't find in Laodicea. They think they're rich, but they're actually poor. They think they're clothed, but they're actually naked. They think they can see, but they're actually blind. Now, if you think this all sounds bad, that's because it is. Of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Laodicea is the only one that doesn't receive any commendation whatsoever. Jesus says nothing good about them. They get no pat on the back. But what's scariest of all is how totally out of touch with reality this church is. They really believe that everything is a-okay. They have no concept of how wretched and pitiable they actually are. And that is a frightening place to be. But that's why Jesus graciously swoops in and calls them to repentance in this letter. He makes the church of Laodicea aware of the need they didn't even know they had. They need Jesus' help. And he's standing at the door knocking, ready to give them the riches, the clothing, and the healing they need. They need his reproof. They need his discipline. And like a good and wise parent, Jesus offers this reproof and offers this discipline because he loves them. Even after all their foolishness and even after all their sin. But they must be zealous and repent. They need to open the door and let Jesus back into their lives and let him back into their church. Because apparently they pushed him out a long time ago. And only when they open that door will they have treasure in heaven and riches that last into eternity. Only then will they have white garments that can actually cover their guilt and their shame. Only then will they be able to see clearly. Only then will they have the joy of eating in the presence of their Lord. And only then will they sit on a throne with Christ in glory. They must be zealous and repent. So again, recapping what we've read. The core sin of the church in Laodicea was their arrogant illusion of self-sufficiency. They're completely out of touch. Belief that they have no need. While in Jesus' eyes. They are wretched. Pitiable. Poor. Blind. And naked. A major contributor. To this sinful. And misguided attitude. Was their material wealth. And the threat of this sin. Is that danger of being spit out. Of Jesus' mouth. Like lukewarm water. And the only solution to their situation is to zealously repent. Open the door and let Jesus back into their lives and let him back into their church. And it's only by accepting this loving reproof and discipline will these people in this church have any hope, both now and in eternity. But here's the thing. This is not the first time that God's people have found themselves in this situation. It's not the first time that God's people have been arrogant because of their material wealth and in danger of being spit out. Look back at Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 10. Just a few verses earlier is the famous Shema. That's the passage where God says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. But then just a few verses later, verse 10, we read this. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God warns the Israelites before they ever even enter the promised land, before they inherit more material wealth than they've ever known. God warns them that they will be tempted to forget him. That is a lesson that the believers in Laodicea should have remembered. They should have read their Old Testament and known Deuteronomy 6. But that's not the end of the parallels. Look at Leviticus chapter 18, starting in verse 24. Again, same context. God warning the Israelites before they go into the promised land. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean and the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. Have you ever heard a sermon that had the word vomit in it more? I don't think I have either. I was thinking about it earlier this week. I don't know that I've ever talked about barf this much in a single sermon. The point is that God warns the Israelites, again in Leviticus, that if they do forget him in the promised land, If they abandon him, they will be vomited out. They will be spit out like the people there before him. Now, again, it sounds an awful like, awful lot like what we're reading today, doesn't it? Warnings about not forgetting him. Warnings about being spit out. I don't think that's a coincidence. The point is that. The Laodiceans were not the first to let their wealth blind them to their need for God's help. And they're not the last people to do that either. I mean, let's be honest. How often do Christians like us and churches like ours fall into the same trap, like Rick mentioned at communion? We arrogantly come to believe the same things the Laodiceans believed. That we are rich. We have prospered. We need nothing. We have money, we have clothes, we have health, we have food in the pantry, we have houses, we have cars, we have retirement funds, we have educations, and we have accomplished careers. Now, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But when we have it so much, we may be tempted to believe that we are self-sufficient. We may be tempted to believe that we need nothing. We don't even need God. And so we slowly but surely forget him. We become lukewarm. Not good for anything. And deserving to be spit out. We close the door on Christ because we don't really think we need him around anymore. We believe the lie that we are rich. When in reality we're poor. We believe the lie that we're covered. When in reality we're actually naked. And we believe the lie that we can see. While in reality, we're blind. And so we go on about our lives, foolishly thinking that we have it all together. Leaving the Lord that we claim to worship standing and knocking outside the door. Now, of course, it's true that the core issue isn't the Laodiceans wealth in and of itself. The core issue is what they've allowed their wealth to do to them. The sinful attitude and belief that they've bought into. This idea of self-sufficiency, of needing nothing, forgetting the Lord. But it remains true that mostly wealthy Christians like us, in mostly wealthy areas, in a mostly wealthy country, we're richer than most Christians that have ever lived. We should be on our guard. Humble enough and realistic enough to admit that we're not exempt from falling into the same trap. It's true that scripture doesn't uniformly condemn God's people having nice things. And it's true that scripture often presents material wealth as a form of blessing from God. It's true that scripture gives examples of God's people using material wealth to glorify him and serve their neighbors. And it's true that. Poverty doesn't automatically make you more spiritual. No one's denying those things. But we also shouldn't ignore the other end of the spectrum. We shouldn't forget the stark warnings that scripture gives us about material wealth. We should pay just as much attention to and spend just as much time wrestling with the passages about laying up treasures in heaven, not on earth. The passage about man's inability to serve two masters. You will either serve God or money. The passage about the deceitfulness of riches harming us like thorns choking a young plant. Or the passage about a rich man entering heaven being as difficult as a camel going through the eye of a needle. If we don't take those warnings seriously... We may find ourselves in the same boat as those Israelites in the Promised Land and the Laodiceans that we read about today. We need to learn from their example the way the Laodiceans should have learned from Deuteronomy 6. We may find ourselves arrogantly and foolishly believing that we have no need, that we can just forget the Lord our God. We may find ourselves lukewarm, Deserving to be spit out. All seven letters to seven churches have ended with that phrase that we see in these verses. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us hear indeed, and let us heed the warning of Laodicea. But even though the church in Laodicea was in such bad shape, no commendation whatsoever, there is still good news for them. And good news for us in this passage. The good news is that instead of spitting sinners like them and spitting sinners like us out of his mouth, Jesus died for us. Instead of giving up on us and walking away, Jesus knocks on the door. Instead of abandoning us, leaving us to ourselves, Christ graciously calls us to repentance He kindly and mercifully makes us aware of the disease that we didn't know we had. But he also offers the cure. And like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God sees us in all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our sin, all of our lukewarmness. He sees through our misguided attempts to hide it, to pretend that everything's a-okay, to convince ourselves that we don't need him anymore. He sees through all of that, and he covers us. He gives us a gift more precious than gold. He gives us white garments of eternal value. He gives us clear vision to look in the mirror and see the horror of our sin, but then also lifts our eyes to the cross and helps us see the horror that brings about his grace. Christ reproves us, and he disciplines us. He calls us to repentance because he loves us. He knocks on the door in order that we would open it, welcome him in, and have a meal with him. And by his grace, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked sinners like us, get to sit at his throne in eternity. Something all seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3 have in common is the invitation... The promise to conquer. That invitation and that promise still stands today for Christians like us and churches like ours. But none of us conquer by our own strength. Not the churches back then and not a church like ours either. We can only conquer by his strength. In Revelation chapter 5, as John's vision continues, he sees this Giant scroll with these different seals on it. and The scroll can't be opened by anyone there. The seals can't be broken. And John knows this is a bad thing. He weeps that no one there can open that scroll. That no one is worthy to break the seals open. But then we read in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. And one of the elders said to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Again, we only conquer because he has conquered. All the churches that we've read about, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Theotira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Fishers, none of us conquer On our own strength. We only conquer by Christ's strength. The lamb who was slain. On our behalf. The one who reproves us. And disciplines us. And rebukes us. And calls us to repentance. Because he loves us. I pray that as Christ stands at the door. And knocks. That we would open it up. That we would let him in. To our own hearts. Our own minds. Let him into our church. And zealously repent. Because again, he is faithful to conquer. He is faithful to welcome us to sit on his throne the way he sat at his father's throne. He gives us new names. He gives us new garments. And he welcomes us into the presence of God in eternity. That is the invitation and the promise that is given to all seven of these churches. And that is the invitation and the promise that God extends to our church as well. That we would conquer as Christ conquered. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the opportunity to read a portion of your word and study a portion of your word that we're often tempted to avoid because it's confusing or because it's scary or because it's weird. But, Father, there are wonderful things that you teach us in these verses. And I pray that as we've read them these past seven weeks and as we've read them this morning, that we would glean just even the tiniest thing that is helpful for us, that is helpful for us as we strive for faithfulness, as we seek to walk and step with your Spirit, And as we have confidence that we can conquer, not by our own strength, but by your son's strength. Thank you that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Thank you that he is sitting at your throne right now, advocating for us. Thank you that he will one day return and that we, too, will get to sit at your throne. Father, in the meantime, help us to be faithful. Help us to be obedient. Help us zealously repent where we need to. And, Father, encourage us along the way. Encourage us to obedience, faithfulness, godliness, all the things that we need in this journey of life. Father, we love you. We worship you. We honor you. We thank you for your son's broken body and shed blood. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.